0: Let's ask for his light for one more moment. Father, in your light we see light. And in your Son, in him was life. And he is the light of the world who lights up ours. And we pray for grace now as we open the word that you might help us. That in your light we would see light. That we would glory in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, it goes without saying that the great tragedy of our world is sin that we don't obey God and that our sin has a way of wrecking shalom and taking us from triumph even then to tragedy. The big idea then is this that when sin destroys God's grace remains and moreover it triumphs. In fact in Romans 6, there's a word by the Apostle Paul to that very point, something like this when he said, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who re- receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So often, Life moves from triumph to tragedy in a matter of weeks, hours, days, or even in the most sudden and hard stop moments. You might think of it this way Jesus was baptized triumph, only to be immediately and intensively tempted by the devil in the desert. Maybe affliction is a better word there than tragedy. The early church was celebrating the healing of the lame beggar and the release of Peter and John from prison, triumph, only to see the judgment of God come upon Ananias and Sapphira for their deceit about holding back some of the proceeds from the sale of their property, tragedy. The dramatic death of Nadab and Abihu was such a moment. From triumph to tragedy, from the triumphal inauguration of Aaron and his sons into the Levitical priesthood to the tragic death of two of Aaron's sons. And presumably, these were the oldest two sons. For for Moses, he mentions these in Exodus 24, verse 1, and then verse 9. And the Lord said this to Moses at the foot of Sinai, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. These two brothers were not just the sons of Aaron, but they were also part of that initial spiritual leadership of Israel. You could say they were two-fifths of the first wave of the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of from the descendants of Levi. I want us to take these 20 verses this morning and think of them around seven bullet points. Don't worry, we won't be here all day, I promise. Okay. First, I want us to see the status of Nadab and Abihu. Secondly, I want us to see then the nature of their offense. Third, I want us to see the dramatic suddenness of their deaths. Fourth, the reputation of Yahweh that was at risk. Next, the caution that was urged upon Aaron and his sons, in verses 4 to 11. Then sixth, the continuation of duty upon Aaron and his sons. And then finally, the necessity of perseverance and grace in the time of Yahweh's discipline. If we can keep that up there during the message, that will be great. Who are these brothers as we think of the status of Nadab and Abihu? Who are these brothers with the funny names? I notice they're not in the list of names for millennials' children. I haven't met any Nadabs or Abihus recently. They were no ordinary Israelites. They were the sons of Aaron, the first and prototypical high priest for Israel in the place of their wilderness worship. Think about this. In fact, they were Aaron's first and second born sons with only two to follow. They had status, respect. Among the several million Israelites that had fled Egypt, In the Exodus, you could say that these two brothers, with their father and their two younger brothers, constituted the original, the inaugural, and the prototypical priesthood as descendants of the sons of Levi. They were it. Honestly, they had it made. Yes, there was Moses, and yes, there were the 70 elders of Israel, but they had a lofty position. Yahweh included them when he commanded Moses and Aaron and 70 of, of those elders of Israel, as I've just referenced from Exodus 24, verse 1. They, their names are there when he said, come up to the Lord and worship from afar. Even their little brothers didn't get an invite. No doubt they were there when Moses reaffirmed the covenant with the people. They were on the stage They were there step by step with Moses and their father Aaron and 70 of the elders of Israel as they climbed Mount Sinai. They were there when they saw the God of Israel with a pavement of sapphire stone under his feet. They were there when Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders were not touched by God but they beheld him. We read that in Exodus 24, 9 through 11. And we're told that there they ate and drank. You see, Nadab and Abihu were no common run of the mill Israelites. And it's a reminder in terms of application to know that sin crouching at our door is no respecter of persons. You might say it is, but no. Here you have, Whether this is the eighth day or the ninth day, here are the firstborn sons of Aaron, probably almost in the oil is still fresh on their heads. They're garbed in their priestly garments, yet their status does not exclude them from falling. Second, I want us to see the nature of their offense in the second half of verse 1. You might ask, what exactly did these two brothers do? Let's consider the nature of their offense. And before their death is described, their offense is given to us. Briefly, in summary, all through chapters 9 and 10 of Leviticus, we see obedience. You'll notice it's a common theme. There's a pattern of commandment and fulfillment or obedience. Obedience to the Lord's word and his commandments. Look, just turn for a moment to chapter 8, look in verse 4, we read this, and Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And then verses 9, 13, 17, 21, 29, they sound the same refrain. You'll see this, as the Lord commanded Moses. Look at the obedience of Aaron and his sons, chapter 8. Verse 36, we read this. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Here, Moses, as the author, is actually commending their obedience. And that was the summary of Moses' words. Here, look in chapter 9 and verse 7. On that eighth day, he says, Draw near. Here's Moses to Aaron. Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering. And there you see it at the end of verse 7, as the Lord has commanded. What do we read right away in verse 10 concerning Aaron's obedience? Same chapter. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Look in chapter, the same chapter in verse 21. Aaron and his sons collectively fulfill their priestly duty. They do as Moses commanded. And in this context, that's the same as obedience to Yahweh. To obey Moses' words is to obey Yahweh. So what was the nature of Nadab and Abihu's offense? Some of you might want to speculate. Many commentators have. Some think they were drunk. Others that they had entered the most holy place. And in even others, that they were envious of their father Aaron and the privileged role that he possessed as the high priest. But none of that is stated plainly. Together, but individually, you see this, they each, it says, they each took his censer, verse 1. They took their censer full of coals, and spices of incense on that fire, and we're told two things. One, they offered unauthorized fire, or literally strange fire, a reference there to John MacArthur's book by the same title. But more specifically, we see the nature of their offense. At the end of verse one, they offered unauthorized fire But what Moses tells us there in this narrative is they did something that Yahweh had not commanded them to use when they used the strange fire. And it points out by application that we may sin by what we do, but also by what we do not do. Here they did that which was not commanded. And in this, they did not bow down to the Lord as the sovereign king of their worship. And so, Andrew Bonar says this of this passage. He says, but if the sinner's eye be blind to God, it sees not anything of the Lord's authority. I think I missed in that quote. It may go up there, Aaron. But if the sinner's eye be blind to God, it sees not anything of the Lord's authority authority. It's as though for that moment these brothers are blind. I want us to consider thirdly the dramatic suddenness of their deaths. Think, ask, how did these men perish? If you look at verse 2, you'll notice it has one subject. 17 words tell the tragedy of the two sons of Aaron. It's no long obit here. Not long at all. It was this instant, sudden, dramatic, irreversible death by judgment for all of Israel to see, they died right there before so many, even in their priestly garments. You'll notice this. It said in verse five of these nephews, the nephews of, of Aaron, that they came and they carried them in their coats. The ones in the coats are Nadab and Abihu, consumed by fire. There was no recovery. And kids, there's, there's a point to learn here. After death comes judgment. So every day is the day of salvation, a day for you to say, Lord, help me to make sure I'm ready to die. Help me live as one who knows that I will not live Forever. That's the application that we may draw here. Because when God kills you, you're dead. And He doesn't play. Like C.S. Lewis's Aslan in The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. God, He is indescribably good. But oh, He is not safe. You see, they made their offering of strange fire before the Lord. But now from before the Lord, that fire of judgment came and consumed them. Where did that happen? All before the Lord. That's a repeated phrase there. And everything is taking place here before the one to whom nothing is hidden. And their death, there was no fatal blow to their heads but it was the Lord's fire to fully consume them. It says they died before the Lord. Not simply that they died. They died before the one who in an act of utter holiness took their life. Dramatic, sudden death by the perfect, purifying, and protecting judgment of God. And it had only been earlier in that very day or at most the day before that Nadab and Abihu had been there basking in triumph. They were there with the oil dripping down in their priestly garments while they saw Moses and Aaron come out of the tent of meeting and bless the people as they saw God appear in this white hot fire to consume the burnt offering And the fat on the altar of burning, as you read at the end of chapter nine. It was all triumphant. It was all cheers, exultant, glorious as Israel basked in the presence of their God in the complete of tent of meeting. They were on cloud nine, but tragedy or triumph turned to tragedy. Even though there in the courts, there was the, the gathered. Consecrated the priests with Aaron and his four sons, the inaugural sacrifices. no doubt the frag the aroma was still there. It hadn't all been cleaned up, but it went south in one moment. But what was at risk? It was Yahweh's reputation. Look in verse three. What was Moses so eager to protect? It's a strange scene, if you think about it. but it was Yahweh's reputation. There's, there's no record of Moses going up and putting his arm around Aaron in this moment. You don't see this. It's, it's really odd in a sense. So look carefully with me at Moses' words to Aaron in verse 3. Don't miss the shock of the scene. After the death of Aaron's two oldest sons, their, their bodies there and their priest's garments, they're still Smoldering, that's what burned things do after they're burned. They're burning there at the front of the sanctuary. The very first act of Moses was to make sure that Aaron, that grieving father, understood a priority that's never perceived or understood by the natural man, the unconverted heart. And I have to say, Moses was a brave soul in a very tragic moment. Think about it. Yes, God is our Father. And yes, Christ Jesus is our Savior and Shepherd and older brother. But we err if we think of God as our buddy, if everything is about the nearness and the imminence of God and never the transcendence. That's why Paul says, Behold the goodness in the severity of God. But if we think of God always as our buddy, in the way we think of someone that we play chess with or go fishing or binge watch episodes of The Crown all night long eating junk food till the wee hours of the morning, we err. This is what the Lord has said. Moses tells Aaron while the bodies of his first born sons are smoldering among those who are near me i will be sanctified and before all the people i will be glorified let me translate this i'm different than you and my glory is transcendent so that i want you to walk away from me saying oh my god how prismatic how shining how brilliant Are you in all the beauty and glory of your holiness? Representatively and actually, Nadab and Abihu were near Yahweh. Their actions were a transgression against the holiness and glory of God, just as the Lord's judgment against them was a manifestation of the same. It could be no other way. Aaron received this word from the Lord that was delivered by Moses. And look at the final sentence there in verse 3. You know he reserved it. We read this. It says, and Moses held his peace. I like the New American Standard. I think it's more accurate. It said, and Aaron said nothing. Listen to Mr. Calvin, that Calvin of the Reformation, as he helps us understand what we're seeing here. He says, if we reflect how holy a thing God's worship is, the enormity of the punishment will by no means offend us. Besides, it was necessary that their religion should be sanctioned at its very commencement. For if God had suffered the sons of Aaron to transgress with impunity, they would have afterwards carelessly neglected the whole law. This therefore, that is, this judgment upon Nadab and Abihu, Mr. Calvin says, was the reason for such great severity that the priests should anxiously watch against all profanation. There's a the fifth thing I want us to see, and that is the caution that's urged upon Aaron and his sons in verses 4 through 11. You, you might ask, what further direction does Moses press on those present? This is, again, it's a weird scene. Imagine you giving directions. You've come into a house, and someone's just died dramatically in that house. And there's children running around or whatever. It's, it's just an odd scene, but Moses is giving direction first he calls the two cousins of Aaron to carry the bodies of Nadab and Abihu away from the front of the sanctuary all the way out of the camp and later in chapter 21 verse 11 we're given the reason the chief priest was not to go into any dead bodies nor make himself unclean even for his father Or his mother. And many weeks, next Sunday night, we'll see chapters 11 through 15, this theme of cleanness, uncleanness come to the foreground. And so Moses, by this word, this delegating the carrying out of the bodies to Mishael and Elzaphan, Moses is actually protecting Aaron from breaking ceremonial law for the priests that would not be codified until 11 chapters later protecting them. And so the unpleasant work of carrying out these burned bodies of Nadab and Elihu was given to Mishael and Elzephon. But now Moses could speak to Aaron and his surviving sons, to Eleazar and Ithamar. It's a little foreign to us, this scene. They could not grieve as normal persons on account of their role as Yahweh's priests in the new place of the Lord's dwelling. Their kinsmen in the whole house of Israel, they could mourn and wail, bewailing literally what Jeffrey Newhouse calls the burning that the Lord had burned there in the end of verse six, where it says, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. There's actually the noun Burning and the verb to burn together for emphasis. They could do it. They're kinsmen in the whole house, but not Aaron and his remaining sons. This grieving father and disconsolate sons had a sacred commission. They were to remain in their posts. They were to keep their hair together and up. They were not to tear their clothes in mourning as was the custom of the day, but they were to remain on duty as it were at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Why? Here's why. Others could mourn, but their heads were anointed with the oil, anointing oil of the Lord. And if they had joined in and wailed like the anguished crowds of their kinsmen, the effect would have equaled a denial of God's prerogative for judgment. As Andrew Bonar, he provides the reasoning as to why this mourning family, he says they were to sit still. He he says the sum of verse 6 is that Moses is saying to Aaron and to his remaining sons, Sit still. Don't leave your post. You have a job to do. And this is how Bonar says it. He says, But the special reason as to why they were to sit still without putting aside their priestly duty was this. He said, They bore, that is Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, they bore a public character as representing to the people God's view of truth and God's opinion on all matters. Therefore, as his representative, they must show that such an act of judgment, that is the burning up of their their sons and brothers, Nadab and Abihu, however severe, was quite deserved and brought glory to his name. They who had most to do in exhibiting the mercy of God at the altar were thus foremost, Bonar says, in testifying that Jehovah continued to be holy and righteous, true, and faithful. Let me quote this again. They, that is, Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, they who had the most to do in exhibiting the mercy of God, at the altar were thus foremost in testifying that Jehovah continued to be holy and righteous, true, and faithful. Wants to see next the continuation of duty that was pressed upon Aaron and his sons. And I want but to comment only very briefly about verses 8 through 11 about this word where the, Aaron is told that he and his sons, they were not to drink any wine or strong drink when they went into the tent of meeting. And I agree that the point of this is this is introducing an important principle that is going to be expounded upon in the next five chapters. And it's introducing, as this book's, this the theme of this book could be summed in one word, holiness, this idea of cleanness, and uncleanness and that God that this cleanness is only achieved through atonement but that cleanness that holiness is imperative should we continue in fellowship with our God so let's think about verses 12 through 15 what were the remaining team of priests to do what would Aaron and his sons give attention to to they were to fulfill their commission And I say it respectably, but it's as though Moses, who I think was very task-oriented, probably more of a Martha than Mary, was saying, okay, guys, business as usual. Yes, the day had gone horribly wrong. Yes, Nadab and Abihu had been consumed by the Lord's fire before their very eyes, but they were still the Lord's priests whose commission was to serve the Lord God who had brought his people up out of the land of Egypt to be their God. And so there's the offerings, the grain offering, the grain offering that was mentioned there in verses 12 and 13. It's the grain offering that had been described In chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. It was the priests due. It was their sons due by the Lord's command. If the Lord says eat, you eat. And why? What was the significance of this grain offering? As a type, it pointed to that restored fellowship between Yahweh and his people that only an acceptable atoning sacrifice could ever accomplish. You understand this. If you're in fellowship with someone, you're willing to sit down and eat side by side, even catty corner. The last thing you want to do with someone that you're not in fellowship with is to eat together, to share the most common and basic of human experience, something we do Three times a day but that's what the grain offering was pointing to but there was more there was the breast and the thigh from the sacrifice of the peace offering there in verse 14 and as the priests labored in their daily mediatorial work at the tabernacle so God had appointed this provision from them from the very people that they represented think about this right they had no land that would be their own but they had this. So too, our Lord Jesus, think about the application and the the way this points to our Lord Jesus as the one who would see the travail of his own soul, Isaiah 53, 11. So too would he receive from his father an inheritance of the nations as his reward. In fact, he he was encouraged to ask for it in Psalm 2, verse 8. And in the continuation of their duty, there's given to us this picture of the rewards that are promised his saints. Why else would Paul tell the Galatians, and let us not grow weary of doing good, because in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There's a final point I want us to see from the five verses that make up the end of the chapter. And that's the necessity of perseverance and grace in the time of Yahweh's discipline. Maybe some of you this week, in your mind, you can go back to Pastor Jamie's sermons on the discipline of the Lord from Hebrews 12. That's a marker that God loves you, right? We, we, we say all these things sometimes. We'll say, um, you know, you want to make God smile? Or you want to make God laugh? Do what? Tell him your plans, right? You want to ask God for a token of his love for you? <laughs> Be ready for discipline in some way. It's a mark of sonship. And so there's a final lesson from our exposition. In the hour of the Lord's discipline, at least two things are needful, I think in big doses, and that is a holy perseverance and an hour by hour casting of ourselves upon his grace, the favor of, that is entirely undeserved. Yesterday, I I took a picture of one of my favorite Paul David Tripp quotes. I think I did this actually on Friday, and I sent it to one of our members where Paul David Tripp says that when we really understand that it's the righteousness of another, of our Lord Jesus, that is the basis for our acceptance before God and our confidence before God. And in a sense, then, these last five verses, they're an odd interaction between Moses and Aaron. To be honest, I've had to wrestle through what is the significance of these five verses. But I think it points to the need that we have for perseverance and grace in the time of the Lord's discipline in our lives or even in our church. It's an odd interaction, but it's not the first entrance or instance of Moses expressing anger with his brother Aaron. It's the second. The first was in the golden calf incident in Exodus chapter 32 where Moses takes Aaron to task as he comes down from the mountain. And Aaron took the heat. But before Moses goes after Aaron, he first takes issues with his nephews, with Eleazar and Ithamar, those two remaining sons of Aaron. You can see it there. Somehow, In all the darkness of that day, you understand this. This happens to me sometimes when I broil stuff in the broiler and I forget to either put the timer on or I shut the door as ever happened. And then all of a sudden, your first reminder that you have something under the broiler is the sacrificial offering in the oven. You know it, right? Well, in all the darkness of that day, the goat of the sin offering had burned up. Well, not a big surprise. There'd been a huge, huge distraction. And these freshly consecrated priests had failed to eat the sin offering and now it was impossible to do so unless they were prepared to choke down the ashes of that goat that had been, you know, basically uh, incinerated there on the altar of burning. But Aaron, their grieving father and high priest, he intervenes to appease His brother, look what he says. Look, behold. Anytime you say behold, you can translate it, look. You could see Aaron saying, you know, kind of stepping between Moses and between Eleazar and Ithamar. Look, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And yet such things as these have happened to me. And he intervenes, maybe as any father would do. Let me translate this. They've done what they could do, even if it was not all that could have been done or even should have been done. And Aaron shows a sympathy in his appeal. Look what he says. And yet such things as these have happened to me. It's a moment of grace and an hour and a day of judgment. And so, he asked Moses a question. He said, if I, let me put it in brackets, their father, the more responsible party, the high priest, if I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And the implication was that the one thing necessary that day was that the Lord was to come in power, as he had come in power to save his people, rescuing them from Egypt. So today, on the day of Nadab and Abihu's death, he came in power to judge his people. Yahweh had spoken, if only by the consuming fire of his holiness and this divine word through Moses the prophet, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified And before all the people, I will be glorified. This day for Israel, brothers and sisters, was a day that left an indelible impression through the fiery theophany, that is God's appearance of judgment at that front of the sanctuary. Like Aslan, he is so, so good But be warned, he is not safe. Aaron's gentle appeal to Moses was effective. As we read in verse 20, look at at the simplicity of this. Of course, Moses is telling on himself here. And when Moses heard that, he approved. In the hour of his discipline, we must remain at our post, neither isolating ourselves nor abandoning our calling, but in perseverance, humbly acknowledging our dependence on his gracious keeping us, preserving us until the day of Christ Jesus. Brothers, sisters, children, we've seen God act. We've seen God act in sobering holy judgment this morning. Yes, He is near. Yes, at times we find great comfort in the nearness and the imminence of God. Even our Lord Jesus has come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But let us not forget what the Lord told Moses. And Moses told Aaron and his sons, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. This is the word of the Lord.